baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Twelve voices in twelve hours. This is a special community discussion on opioid prevention from the City of Tonawanda High School Auditorium on News Radio 930 WBEN. And a very good evening to you. This is Tim Wenger inside the uh, auditorium here at the City of Tonawanda High School, where all day long you've been hearing about this opioid conversation that would be taking place here, and it's about to get underway. All of the uh, special guests have gathered on the stage here inside the auditorium. We still have some people uh, filing into the auditorium at this time, but uh, really a special evening here that has been long in the planning uh, to talk about what we've been talking about all day long on WBEN, and that, of course, uh, the opioid epidemic, the opioid crisis, the situation and the impact uh, that this has on all of us here in the Buffalo and the uh, western New York, the Erie County area. Uh, throughout the day, 12 voices in 12 hours, we've heard various perspectives, uh, interesting, compelling commentary uh, from all aspects of uh, the opioid situation. And now tonight it culminates uh, with this special live conversation, a forum, if you will, uh, which will open momentarily uh, with the stories, the stories of, uh, of people that are living this, uh, people that are going through it, people that have come through it successfully uh, in what their stories are. And then throughout the evening, uh, we will also uh, be discussing, uh, you know, with some of the experts in a panel of, of discussion that will be happening uh, throughout the next uh, couple of hours or so. Again, inside uh, the city of Tonawanda High School Auditorium, where this is just about to uh, get underway. Uh, center stage here. Uh, students have gathered here, athletes, uh, teachers, parents, and uh, anyone considered. The auditorium has gone completely dark as we await the beginning of this live opioid conversation here on News Radio 930 WBEN, again from the city of Tonawanda High School. Uh, this should begin momentarily, and uh, we now go to the stage at the Tonawanda High School on WBEN. Lois, one second I was driving my car on the road, and the next I was 100 yards out into the woods. My, my car crumpled around like a ball of tin foil around me, and I remember stumbling out to the road and just kind of laughing to myself, wondering, how did I get here? And things really couldn't get much worse than that, or so I thought. Are we okay. At my lowest, I was nearly naked in a cold, damp trap house doing sexual favors for the next hit with people thought, that I thought I could trust with guns surrounding me, 
police knocking at the door every single day and night. At my lowest, I was in my house with no electricity, no heat, sitting in the bathtub, cold water with razor blades lined up along the edge with a bunch of pills, trying to figure out if that night was going to be my last. At my lowest point, I was 123 pounds soaking wet. I hadn't eaten, slept, done anything for days, showered. Nothing mattered except that next one. And at my lowest, I find myself sitting in the back of a cop car. And you don't realize, you know, the meaning of the red, white, and blue, meaning freedom, until you're sitting in the back of a cop car taking your freedom. These are some of the voices of people who've had opioid addiction in their life, people who've had their lives turned upside down by something that started innocent, something that started with a bad idea, something that started with a just a let's try kind of attitude. Our first speaker tonight is Tony, and Tony's going to tell us more about his story. Welcome to our opioid conversation tonight. We're live on News Radio 930 WBEN. We're live on Facebook. Tony, tell me more about your story. Hey guys, uh, my name's Tony, I'm a recovering addict. I'm 20 years old and uh, I'm just going to start at the beginning. I grew up in a small town called Williamsville, it's not too far from here, and um, I wouldn't say that I had everything handed to me, but I kind of had my life planned out. I mean, I remember myself always wanting to go to college and, you know, plan on passing high school with flying colors. I even went to a Catholic elementary school. Um, in eighth grade, I remember having a track party with a few of my friends um, just to kind of celebrate the end of the season. And at this point, my parents, you know, it was kind of contemplating divorce, and I kind of knew what was coming, but I didn't really care. I mean, I'd always taken more homage to my friends than I had um, my family, and that was just naturally who I was. Um, but in eighth grade, after this track party, you know, we were, we were walking to a local park, and a couple of my friends got hit by a Jeep going about 45 right in front of me. And I've never had such a such an experience just pull me down to earth like that one did, and I no longer wanted to be there, and I didn't really know how to handle it. Um, this was the first time I drank. I was with a few girls, and they were handling the situation almost the exact same way. They had, you know, we weren't able to have fun the way we used to be able. So drinking was a recreational thing, and it was just you know, on weekends, and I didn't really see anything wrong with it. I mean, it was encouraged by my friends and my social media, and uh, social media is kind of what led me into marijuana. Um, Going to high school, I was running track almost every day. I was devoted to my swim team. Um, and I don't know, I was just a rebel at heart. I always had been. So going into high school, I remember just wanting to be a part of the skater crowd, wanting to leave school early and show up late. Um, and with that, the people I surrounded myself with, I, um, I was introduced to smoking weed. And getting high, I mean, it just kind of became like force of habit. It was the only way for me to have fun. Um, and at first it was just, you know, an after-school thing, a recreational thing, and it became an everyday, habitual, almost religious thing for me. Um, and I'm not going to say that we'd ruined my life, but it brought me around the people and the places that eventually did. Um, you know, throughout high school, I had always found myself to be somewhat of an outcast, but I naturally took that position. Um, and the friends around me encouraged me to try new things. I mean, I remember 
wanting to get weed a little cheaper. And the way to do that was to meet the people that were, that were growing in the first place. And I was introduced to a lot of sketchy figures in my life, and suddenly what was just weed became weed and mushrooms, and then what was just weed and mushrooms slowly became pills. And now this is going into sophomore year. And recreationally, I remember being, being on my way to a, to a high school um, pep rally, and a few of my friends and I were just smoking in the parking lot, and I was handed a couple of pills, and they said, hey, you know, these will make you feel drunk without actually having a drink. And I thought, hey, why not? Um, I don't really remember the rest of the night. I just remember that being um, exactly what I wanted, you know? I wanted to dissociate completely, and I was able to do that through the use of pills. So what was just, you know, a natural drug habit became, you know, a pill habit, and the pills picked up just as easily as the weed did. And I was regularly used to getting high as my recreation, so what was the difference? Um, from there, I remember I was having a lot of trouble at home. I had started living with my dad, and it, was, it wasn't a happy uh, relationship. It was hardly a relationship at all. Um, and from there, I was just put in a really bad place. Um, I ended up being introduced while I was there to uh, Oxycontin. I remember it being such a seamless transition from, from you know, Xanax to Oxy, and next thing you know, I was, I was off to the races. I mean, it became my new favorite thing. It was one a day, and then it was two a day, and then it was two at a time, and next thing you know, I was taking them hourly until I was throwing up. Um, and I remember just feeling so hopeless, and in the moment, in a half-hearted suicide attempt, I ended up overdosing. Um, and I was spent, you know, I was given 10 days in a psych ward, and after that, you know, I was thrown out on a prescription. They said I had borderline personality disorder, and I was sent off back into the world. And I immediately went back to drinking and smoking, because that's how I, that's how I handled things. That's how I was learning to have fun. Um, high school only encouraged that. It was all over my Instagram feed. It was in my Snapchat stories. That's what my friends were doing. That's what I wanted to do, and that's what I took pictures of myself. Um, from there, it was hallucinogens, and then from hallucinogens, it was harder stuff like party drugs. And then I was able to take party drugs not just on the weekends, but I could take them and go to school. I could take them and sit down to, to dinner with my family. Um, so towards the end of high school, my main goal became to just leave. I wanted to get out, I wanted to drop out, and I wanted to get my own apartment. I wanted to be alone. I wanted to seclude myself and be able to do whatever I wanted to do. So that's what I did. I, I bought an old junker, and I got a new job, and I got an apartment, and that's what I was doing every night, was just going out and partying and having people over. But those people weren't my friends. I eventually, I thought they were. And I thought that's what was going to make me happy, because I didn't really know at this point what in my life was going to make me happy. Um, I didn't know how to have fun. So I surrounded myself with these beautiful people, and I surrounded myself with these drugs, and I made myself feel so good, and then so bad, and then so good, and I was hitting highs and lows throughout this whole thing, and I just eventually ended up secluding myself. I cut all the people out of my life that originally cared about me and surrounded myself with people who didn't. Um, I met the love of my life in Niagara Falls. I was at the casino, I met a girl, um, and she had taken me to obtain heroin. And that's kind of where it all went down. Uh, from then on, I couldn't stop. That was all I cared about. That was the thing I centered, I, I made center in my life. I mean, my, I revolved around it. That was, that was it for me. Um, I mean, I had tried other things. I had tried Coke, and that, just nothing did it. And I couldn't say what drove me to that point, and I didn't sit there and just make the honest decision. I didn't see my friend leave the world and think that, this, you know, the only thing that's going to cure this is heroin, but eventually that's the only thing that made me feel anything. Um, I ended up moving back into a storage unit beneath my mom's house, 
And um, from there, I was, I was slowly, slowly cutting down my hours at work. I um, was slowly losing friends, and at this point, I only had a few. Um, and that's when I was drinking, and I was, I was pretty much using whatever I could get my hands on. Um, and then one night, I went on a bender, and I was driving with my friend down uh, through Clarence, and one second I'm driving on the road, and the next I'm 100 yards out into the woods, and my car is just crumpled. And I couldn't, I, I, I just, I couldn't process what was going on, so I backed it, put it in reverse, and I'm trying to back the car out, and the only reason I know my, my buddy's okay is because he's saying, dude, it's wrecked. You're not saving this one. Um, and I stumbled out to the road, and I just remember laughing hysterically. Um, don't know why. And I was eventually brought, I was given the choice to go to jail or to get an ambulance, so I did. And I handled not having a car by just using more. Um, I would get drunk, and then I would take my mom's keys, and I would go out to buy more, more booze. And then eventually, once I got used to taking her keys, I would go and I would buy more dope. And I remember bringing the dope home one day, getting so sick off of it that I uh, ended up laying in the backseat of my friend's car in the parking lot of the hospital. And they were just shaking me, making sure I stayed awake. And I wouldn't let them take me in. Um, about a week later, I just made the decision to go to a friend's house because I knew his roommate was, well, he was what I was. He was an addict. And I left him 20 bucks, and I came back, and I got high. Um, I got so high that I was falling asleep. I just remember sending my friend my location and passing out. Um, I woke up to something crackling in front of me, and I wasn't really sure what it was. Um, I found out later that it was crack, and mixing the two made my heart race so fast, I don't know really what happened. I just remember waking up in the hospital saying, thank God for Narcan, right? But I wasn't, I wasn't thanking God. I was tearing at the seams, on, on the ties they had me to the bed. I mean, and not once did I think, you know, the, how did I get here? Um, but my family convinced me that I had nothing left. My friends told me to go to rehab, and for some reason I did. And that was May 19th of last year. Today, I have a full year clean. Um, thank you. I think the power of telling these stories makes a difference. Thank you for sharing. Our next storyteller, come on up. Okay. I'm Brittany, I'm 29, and I'm a recovering addict. Um, my upbringing, was not too great. Um, I'd say there was a lot of drugs and alcohol used in the home when I was a young child. There was a lot of abuse towards me and towards others in the home. Um, I wasn't set up very well for life or success, um, even at a young age. Um, so for me, school was like my safeguard. Like I could go to the teachers and it was, it was just safe for me. Um, I did mentoring, I played softball. Um, I liked being at school. Uh, the ages 11 to 16, I had about the same friends, um, same group of friends. And I would say I was more of a follower than a leader. And about the age of 12, I had my first drink and my first hit of weed. Just out of curiosity, not really to 
follow them or I want to be like them, but after a while of seeing it, you, I, be, I became curious. And um, it became a every weekend thing to the point where I was getting concussions and not being able to walk home and stuff um, that isn't normal for a 12-year-old and should have been recognized by parents or family members and whatnot, but never was. Um, so as I got a little bit older, I started, oh, let me backtrack. I was 16 years old and my, I got a boyfriend and my boyfriend's mom had asked us to clean her house and you don't want to clean the house, nobody does. So she said she would give us Laura tabs if we cleaned her house. I didn't know what they were. He didn't know what they were, but hey, okay. You know, well, took a liking to them, and I was over her house all the time to clean her house on. And about six months later, my stepdad had passed away from stage four lung cancer, and he had, um, it, our house was like a pharmaceutical then, like there was all these pharmaceuticals of opiates uh, in the cupboards and I would go in there and take all these drips of morphine and methadone and again, nobody had a clue. Nobody has a clue when I don't wake up for hours on the couch. Nobody has a clue when I don't come down for dinner. I mean, the signs were there. They just were not noticed. Um, so I, I straightened up, got clean on my own for a little bit. I wasn't too bad into it then. Um, I got pregnant with my daughter, but I didn't leave the lifestyle. Her dad was a full-blown um, cocaine dealer. And... Um, I had my daughter, and everything was going great. Like, we had money, everything was great. I had my daughter. I finally felt love and to be loved for the first time in my whole life. And um, May 16th, 2009, my daughter passed away. And uh, she was eight months old. She passed away from sudden infant death syndrome. Um, so, as you can imagine, my life then took another downward spiral. And at her wake, I remember my sister handing me a handful of pills. At the time, I didn't know what they were, but I took them. Sure, anything to get rid of this throbbing pain in my heart. Um, it was Vicodin, another opiate. Um, So then from there, I wanted to make my daughter proud, and I signed up for college. And I got into college, and I did some courses, and I, um, I did pretty good for a while, and then I was asked to do a paper about a place that meant a lot to you, and that place was my daughter's stone. 
and maybe I shouldn't have picked that to write about because that opened up my addiction all over again. Well, I let it open it up all over again. And um, there I went again. And this time I started smoking crack with a family member who is now deceased from a heroin overdose. Um, I used with her every single day, every single night. We were in a trap house with the guns and drugs just laid out everywhere all around us like it was normal. Wouldn't shower for a month, wouldn't brush my teeth, wouldn't change my clothes. I remember the one time seeing my mother and she thought I had dyed my hair because my hair was so greasy. No self-respect, no nothing for myself. Cops banging in the doors, the windows getting broke. And guess I didn't care. I just didn't care. I just wanted one more hit. One more. I didn't care. <laughs> well, something gave, and I ran out of finances. And I went and I told my mother that I had been using again, and I had been using hard and long for a while now. And I was crying to her, telling her how I couldn't go to college anymore, and I had failed her and myself numerous times now. And um, right after I told her that, I left the house and went and got high again. That's the insanity of this disease. It just continues to keep going and going and going. Well, I, uh, later that month, though, I did end up going to rehab. And on what is it? November 15, 2011, is my clean date. I have seven years clean. Thank you. And I, thank you. And I have two beautiful babies today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Jeff is our next storyteller tonight. How you doing? I'm Jeff. I'm 33 and I'm a recovering addict. Um, like most, my story revolves around hardship, loss, depression, and mental health. Um, growing up, my upbringing was great, if not the best. I ended up uh, growing up playing hockey, playing sports, camping, going on family vacations, doing what an average kid does when he grows up. Um, growing up, uh, my education, how can I say it, lacked. I uh, wasn't very involved around school and uh, didn't really care for going. Always was skipping out. Um, well, my senior year, I ended up dropping out. Ended up landing a, a job that was a great career opportunity for myself, averaging anywhere from $80,000 to $100,000 a year. Um, and that's where the downfall all started. Um, one day I was at work and I ended up uh, getting injured, hurt my back. And that's where I was introduced 
to my favorite, Laura Tabs. That's where it all started. Started off by taking one, two a day, just to get through the pain. Trying to be a functioning addict, which obviously at that time I thought it was, I was doing good, but that was, uh, that was me just lying to myself. Um, let's see here. So uh, anyways, um, like I said, I was working at a career job, and uh, while I got hurt during that time, I ended up um, losing my father. Um, I was only 20, 21 at that time, and uh, I just remember going to his funeral, and I couldn't, I couldn't even go up to the casket and see him. The only random thoughts that were going through my head is, I got to swallow these pills to numb my pain because I hated feeling. Anytime I felt, that was no good. I was a person that just liked to be numb, not think of any consequences or repercussions or any of that stuff. Um, and after my father passed away, it just seemed like it was all downhill from there. It felt like every two years, someone in my family would pass away whether it was my grandpa, my grandma, my cousins, my aunts, my uncles. Every two years, someone passed away, and that was just... That time, I just felt like it was... After, every, after someone passed away, it was just more pills. It started off one and two. By the time everyone passed away, it was up to 40 or 50 pills a day I was taking. And that's when I ended up uh, losing my job. Um, lost my job. And, uh, I ended up losing my job, like I said. I ended up, uh, at that time, I ended up owning a house and all the material things like cars, four-wheelers, Harleys. Well, slowly but surely, here comes the repo, man. It's either taking the house or taking the trucks or the cars or whatnot. And it just spiraled out of control. And um, I just remember at my lowest, I was uh, sitting in the bathtub, like I was saying, and I just had razor blades lined up, cold water in the bathtub because I didn't have no heat or electricity at that time. And uh, just a bunch of pills, and I was just ready to end it. I, I, I had enough at that point. And I remember picking up the phone and calling my sister to say my last goodbyes, or what I thought was going to be my last goodbyes. And uh, she said, I'll, I'll talk to you tomorrow. I remember her saying that. And uh, I, I just kept reassuring her that, no, there isn't going to be no tomorrow. Well, I hear a knocking at the door. So I look out the window, and I can't see anyone. So a couple minutes pass, and uh, the cops are kicking in my door. They end up rushing into the bathtub, getting me out of the bathtub. I was, obviously, I was naked. And uh, they ended up taking me and putting me in an ambulance. And they gave me the option. It was either going to jail or going to rehab. And at that time, I had to think long and hard because I really wasn't done using, I didn't think, at that time. I, 
I had nothing to live for at that time. I, I lost everything that I worked 10 years for. And uh, I just didn't, didn't want to go to rehab. But I didn't want to go to jail either. So I decided to end up going to rehab. I ended up going to uh, Stutzman. And it was the best option and choice that I've ever made in my life. It changed my life dramatically. I stayed 42 days there. Um, every day that I was there, my, my mom, she would come over and visit me. My brother and my sister would come and visit me. And I just remember sitting down when I was eating in the rehab and just looking at their faces, you know, the tears rolling down their eyes. And I just, right then and there, I just, I, I couldn't put my mom and my family through it anymore. I've beaten them up so much whether it was manipulating them, stealing, whatever, anything bad, you name it, I did it probably. And uh, I was just done at that time, and I wanted to make sure that my stay at Stutzman was going to be my one and only. I, I didn't want to be one of those people that would go in and out of rehabs, trying to get it, trying not to get it, what works, what doesn't work. No, I wanted that one time in rehab to be it. And currently, I have five and a half years clean. And thank you. And our next storyteller is Billy. We welcome you to the stage. All right. How you doing, everybody? My name is Billy. And well, first of all, what I like to introduce myself is I like to start out saying I'm an addict and my problem is Billy. Okay. <laughs> Because that's who the problem is. Let's, get, let's, cut, let's call a spade a spade. Um, so basically, um, i got to be honest, everybody back here, I have no idea who they are. But every single one of them told my story. And that's, that's the, the, the camaraderie that um, you know, recovery brings. You know, it brings people from all walks of life that you don't even know about that can actually um, grow and actually move forward together. Um, so that's, that's one thing I like about it, and that's what keeps me around. Um, so with this, normal life, uh, grew up, only child, um, spoiled rotten, tell you right now. Just gonna, let's get that out there. Um, so, you know, a lot of attention was based on me, and, you know, I liked it. So, you know, basically it was more or less, um, you know, growing up, played hockey, um, long time, uh, played some football, wrestled, um, did a lot of things. So, you know, grew up, didn't really have any problems. Uh, school was a big problem for me. Uh, I didn't like it. I didn't. I, it's not that I was stupid. It was just I thought it was boring, and I had the attention span of a moth, so it's hard to like focus on anything. You know what I mean? So, with that being said, I didn't, you know, do very well in it. So they um, categorized me as being in like a special ed class. So with that being said, um, you know, I was bullied, and people, you know, kids would pick on me, and I, I had a real hard time expressing myself verbally, which I don't anymore. Um, <laughs> so. Um, so when I, when I mean that, like, I just couldn't do it, so I would just lash out. And the only way I knew, I, I didn't know how to control my emotions, so I just, I just went off. And so I would get in trouble in school, and, you know, this and that. So, you know, fast forward to about, um, we'll talk about my first drink, I guess. Um, grew up in North Sonawanda, so there's a, a middle school that was called Rezel, and there used to be this house across the street that everybody used, it was, it was being built, so nobody lived there, and all the kids used to go back there and smoke their cigarettes and had their Purell to put over their hands so they didn't smell like smoke and all that stuff, you know? And uh, so this one kid, you know, uh, my buddy, he brings, uh, he pulls out a bottle of Goldschlager, 
you know, and had no idea what it is. I said, dude, what's with the fish food in there, dude? You know what I mean? The little flakes that float around in there. So I didn't like it at all, but, you know, it's like, all right, everyone else was doing it, so I just followed suit. And uh, to me, it was gross. It was like swallowing a big red. I didn't like it. Um, but I got drunk, and it was really like probably the second or third day in school, and I had, I didn't even know my schedule, and, you know, go figure, my luck, my first class was swimming, and I'm drunk, <laughs> and they want me to swim laps, and I'm just like, that's not going to happen, <laughs> I can't do that, so, you know, it, it just, you know, needless to say, it affected my, you know, it affected me right away, but what I did like it is all my life I was searching, you know, like I said, I was outcasted being, you know, special ed. So I was always trying, looking for that place to fit in, that missing piece, you know. But um, drugs and alcohol filled that void for me for a little while, you know. But then it started to, you know, uh, it turned sour. You know, it's, you know, addiction to me is like kind of like a bad marriage, you know what I mean? It's like through thick and thin, you know, better or worse, sickness and health to death do you part. That's kind of how I look at it. It follows you everywhere you go. You know, it's with you. You know, you go to meetings, people are saying that the disease is outside doing push-ups. Man, the disease is in my head doing push-ups, you know, with me. So um, I look at it that way. Going into that, um, you know, fast forward, I was uh, training for a wrestling match, and I'm at the gym, and I pulled the weight off, and right off the weight tree, and I blew my back out. Um, never had experienced that kind of pain before, but I couldn't do anything. I couldn't put my socks on, you know what I mean? So I'm this, you know, I'm this young athletic kid, and I can't even put my socks on. So go to the doctor and he's like, oh, well, we'll just, uh, just don't drive with these, you know, they're a little stronger than aspirin. That's all he said. You know, obviously I don't need to say it, but I will. It was lower tabs and, you know, we're off to the races, you know, no, no need to uh, go into any more of that. So, you know, it's just back and forth battling, um, can't do anything without it. You know, uh, for people that don't understand what being dope sick is like, I can give you an example of the lengths and the, the depths that I will go to. Um, I was dope sick and didn't have any money, had nothing. But you know what I had? I had a tooth. So I went to the dentist. I told him it was infected. I know if he pulls it, he's going to give me lower tabs. That's the depths I go to. Um, so that's where this disease will take you, you know, this, this, this thought process. Um, so, you know, I'm... I'm back and forth, flipping and flopping, going, you know, trying to, trying to do this. And, you know, obviously everything, gra you know, graduates, pills get expensive, they run out, and then in comes heroin. And, man, that's, that is the one drug that took my lights out. You know, I thought I was rough and rugged, all this and that, but I'll tell you what, man, that knocked my lights out. And, you know, watching friends and, you know, people I know just, just fade away from me is unbelievable. You know, the amount of numbers, especially in this community. So, um, you know... With that, going around, you know, tried, tried going to rehabs, uh, nothing really worked, but I got to tell you, I never put 100% effort into it, and that's the difference to today, you know. Um, so going to a rehab, what happened was, I want to talk about my lowest point when I you know, did my introduction is when, you know, I'm in the back of a cop car. Well, apparently they told me I entered a dwelling without permission. Had no idea. Okay, whatever. Let's do it. So I get... Um, get locked up and, you know, I'm sitting here and, you know, I'll tell you what, you don't realize, you know, um, what you have until it's taken away, you know, that warm shower, that nice soft pillow. And, you know, when you're, you know, doing roll call and, and lock-ins in jail and stuff like that, and you're eating what they give you, I mean, you're, you're at their mercy. So, you know, I'll tell you what, freedom, but me getting arrested that day, you know, at being my lowest point, I got to tell you was my highest point as well, because losing everything to me was freedom. Okay, because I honestly felt this weight lift off my shoulders like, look, man, 
the war is over for me. You know, I don't want to live like this anymore, nor will I live like this anymore. And, you know, I made a decision. You know, I, uh, I tried to get into First Step, and, you know, I was, I was, I was calling, but, you know, the best, you know, I've been places. I was alumni everywhere, you know. So these places are like, look, man, you've been here before. We're not playing you no more. We're not paying you. Get out. And I just, I, like, begged. I was like, please, I'm, I'm serious this time. And um, luckily, I knew one of the uh, gentlemen that worked at the facility, so he said, I will uh, put you on the list. I said, okay, but I had nowhere to go. So what I did was I checked myself into Niagara Falls Memorial Hospital. Okay, so I went into psych ward. I said I was suicidal. I had to do it. You know what I mean? So I go there. First thing I look at, some guy's eating chess pieces. Another one's licking the wall. I'm like, I got to get out of here. <laughs> I got to get out of here. This, I'm good. You know, I'm cured. I'm good. But that's not the case, you know. But I did realize that that's where I was headed. You know, and that's the point I want to get across is you can really see that there is a, a, a bottom below your rock bottom. You know what I mean? And, you know, so I do seven days in there. I go to first step for seven days. And I'm like, listen, I'll do whatever you want, whatever you want. And I'll tell you, man, it, the, the weirdest thing is, is like as, as addicts, alcoholics, we will do anything to get that dollar. We can, find, we can find a way to get high with no money, do whatever we can on the street. But as soon as we come into a rehab, we don't know what to do. We don't know what to do. We're like babies. Feed us, you know, tell us when to shower, do all this, go, go to bed. Like, that's, that's just the way it worked. But, you know, I was like, I'll do whatever. And then you start getting a couple days, and you're like, oh, I'm starting to feel good. And, you know, next thing you know, they're like, oh, we want you to go to a 30-day program. I said, whoa, whoa, no, no, I got this. I got this. I'm good, you know. And this is, but I just kept telling myself, man, you don't got this. You don't got this yet, you know. So I went. Best decision I made. And then they told me, you know what, I completed it. They're saying, we want you to go to a halfway house. I said, no, nah, I got this. <laughs> I got this. But in my head, I don't got this. You know, so for me, I had to do it. And I went and I did it. And I'll tell you what, one of my moment, moment of clarity there, I had a, um, a, a friend that I called and I, it was out in the middle of Somerset and you don't get service with your cell phone because I had an Obama phone. You know why? Because I was broke. I was so broke I couldn't pay attention. And I had an Obama phone and it didn't work. So I called my friend and I said, hey man, I'm like, this place stinks. I can't even get a cell phone service. And he said, why don't you go to Children's Hospital and tell them kids your problem? I said, ouch. <laughs> ouch. You know, so that, put, that was a humility check that I desperately needed in my life. Because, you know, I kept putting my selfishness and realizing, oh, what I don't have. Well, what about, you know, somewhere, some, someone is praying for something I take for granted. And I look at that today. Um, so after, do the halfway house, stay there about six months. And I leave, and I go to the Oxford House um, in Niagara Falls, 628 Chilton. I recommend it if you do go and leave rehab. It is a great place to go. Um, got me back on my feet, uh, got me around good people in the program, got me structure that I desperately needed. And, uh, you know, I, could, I couldn't be more grateful because, you know, today a big thing for me is instead of looking at the problem today, I try to focus on the solution, you know. Um, if you get a flat tire, you know, you got a nail in it, you, you're not going to worry about where you ran over the nail. You want to fix the tire, so let's fix the tire. And that's kind of where I look at it today. Fix the problem, you know, and um, that's what I live by. So today, I mean, life is great. Um, a lot of hard work was put in to get where I am today. It doesn't come easy, but if you want it, it is attainable. And all of us here are living proof. I can guarantee you that. Um, I have a beautiful family. Um, I'm, I'm married. I got a good job. I got three beautiful kids, and my wife supports me so much. I love you, and thank you all for coming out. Thank you so much. 
Billy, uh, did you say earlier you used to not talk a lot? You were quiet, a quiet kid? Yeah, well, you turned that around for sure. Um, the stories are very powerful, and thank you to all our storytellers here, and we do have more stories to share for you tonight. Uh, once again, thank you for joining us tonight. This is an opioid conversation. I think we all know what the problem is. I think we all understand there is a problem. Tonight, we want to show you how that problem happens, how it starts, how it can be treated, how we can have recovery. And you might get scared straight tonight. That's, that's not what we want to do, but that might happen. It sounds like an ad for rehab. That's not our point tonight, but that might happen. Someone might realize that they need to be rehabbed. They need recovery help. We have a lot of friends here tonight helping with that conversation. We're joined tonight by Jody Gerhard with the Horizon Program and Program Director. We're joined by Lindsay Amico from Roswell Tobacco Free Youth Coordinator. And she has a lot of thoughts on how tobacco leads to a lot of things that we heard here on these stages and these stories tonight. Honorable Mark Saltarelli, City of Tonawanda Drug Court Judge, knows firsthand what happens when people have their lives ripped apart by drugs. Also have Jessica Hutchings, Kids Escaping Drugs Face-to-Face, -face, the Program Director. I have Kevin Hardwick from the Erie County Legislature. And I have Dr. Josh Lynch, Director of Emergency Medicine for Collider Health at DeGraff, also a member of the Erie County Opioid Task Force. I'm Nicholas Pickles from KISS 98.5. Tonight, we're being broadcast on News Radio 930 WBEN. And I'm going to ask Dr. Josh Lynch to come up and say a few words about the problem that we're speaking of tonight. Great. Thank you very much. So I won't take up too much time. I think, um, I think we all owe the four folks behind me a round of applause and a thank you. So thanks, guys. So, you know, as we heard from, from Billy, um, the stories that we hear from folks like these um, are really all too common, actually. Um, and, and a couple of themes, I think, that, that we heard from, from the four of you were that no one, no one really planned or, or saw this coming. I think um, there, that, that people realized where they got when it was really too late and, and mostly at their lowest point moments, right? And I think that's where, they're, where, where they started their stories um, for a reason. So I'll, I'll tell you that, that I have learned a tremendous amount of medical information and good information from talking to people just like this, uh, talking to them in the hospital and talking to them really kind of all over the place. So another common theme is is the element of surprise. And I think if you, if you listen carefully to their stories, they were surprised at some point in their life. But the surprise didn't happen quickly. The surprise happened kind of gradually. So gradual changes started to make, innocent changes kind of happened. And then at one point, they woke up in a police car in a drug house on the side of the road um, in a bathtub. And that was a quick change for them and a quick surprise for them. Now, Look at it from my perspective. I end up seeing folks and patients in the, in the emergency department, and now I'm interacting with their families. And oftentimes where this comes to light is not necessarily at someone's house, but in the hospital. So that's another group of people that are surprised, but they're surprised quickly. Because if you also listen to their stories, most of their families didn't see this coming. So, they, so now the family is surprised in, in the hospital. And the, and the number one question that usually ends up coming out in that emergency department visit is, we wish we would have seen some signs. And oftentimes, kind of along the way, the signs were always there. 
and we heard it from them that the signs were there when they looked back. They were all over the place, actually. And, and once you sit down with the families and start talking about really kind of what the signs were, they start to put the pieces together. But usually they don't put the pieces together until after, until after the event happens, until after the overdose happens, and until after I meet them in the hospital. So there, a couple pieces kind of of advice is to be kind of hypervigilant. I'll stay away from that area. So, um, so a, pe a piece of advice is to stay hypervigilant. And what, what we heard from, from these folks was that um, no one knew and, and no, one, no one seemed to care at some point if somebody missed dinner or they slept in all day. Right? These, are, these are subtle signs. They obviously can be signs of other things. Um, if I go back over there, someone, ho someone holler, okay? <laughs> so, so things like more time, unaccount more time that's unaccounted for. Or, you know, they used to come to, they used to like be home for dinner every day and now they're not. Like, what's going on? And, right, that happens in teenage years and younger, but these are things to kind of pay attention to. Some other kind of, su some other kind of subtle things um, are really kind of like somebody becoming more withdrawn or somebody really having a group of friends that changes very quickly. Now, obviously, kids going through middle school and high school uh, change friends and bounce around. Um, abrupt changes or things that, you know, things that happen quickly. So another theme that we heard um, from a couple folks here was that after, after a small victory, so after a couple, stay, a couple days stay at ECMC or a couple days stay in detox, um, you, think you, you think you have it figured out, right? So a couple days, no problem. I'll do three days in the hospital. That's no big deal. You feel a little bit better. And then the next step is, well, why don't, let's do seven next time, right? Kind of, so maybe it doesn't sound like a, such a great idea. And then seven turns into 14, it turns into 21, it turns into 28, it turns into 42. Um, suddenly, 42 days is a very long time, and people can lose interest and feel a little bit better and think that they have it. Well, I, I need to tell you that addiction is a chronic disease. And actually, addiction is a lifelong disease. And what we've learned scientifically is that there's chemical changes in the brain that really don't ever go back. So if you look at, if you look at this as, as kind of biochemical changes and really kind of a chronic disease, um, you don't necessarily have it after seven days or after a three-day stay in the hospital. This is something that will take really kind of a lifelong investment and lifelong attention being paid. And if I'm speaking out of turn, please let me know. But I think that they will agree that every day they think about this and every day they have to work to make good choices and make right decisions and do the right thing. So the other part of it that we heard from, from our, our folks back here is that, that relapse happens and bad choices happen. And I will tell you that that's, the, that that's really the trend and that's part of the disease. So what I'm here to tell you kind of as family members and friends and loved ones is that you, you can't give up on them after they make a mistake, after they relapse, after they come to the hospital again for another overdose. Um, that's that's a, big, a big mistake, really. So for parents, friends, and families, you can't, you can't disengage. So you have to stay, you have to, have to stay kind of hypervigilant. You have to stay really paying attention to behavior changes and, and, and things like that. If someone's good for a year, um, keep in mind that, that those addiction changes have, have, have really already happened and the warning signs can come back up a year, two, three, four years later.
So just one, one other kind of point to make, to, to kind of to keep in mind, um, is after a stay, after a stay in rehab or in detox, or after a period of time spent in, incarcerated, there's chemical changes that make the body very susceptible to an overdose again. So when someone gets back from detox or rehab, uh, they're, at a, they're at a very high risk to overdose. And, the re and hopefully, that program has kind of teed them up to make good choices and not get themselves in that position. But it takes a lot less medication or a lot less drugs to have that happen than, than the amount of drugs it took before they, went, before they went into rehab. A couple kind of random, ran, random points here is that we've worked very hard to place Narcan in all the emergency departments really in Western New York. There may be one or two that don't have it. But if you go in and you're with a family member or a friend or a loved one uh, and they've overdosed, um, we can offer you a Narcan kit to take home for free. And that's most, most hospitals have that. You don't have to be the patient if there's mom and dad and, and the patient. Everybody, everybody should be able to get one as long as there are supplies and typically there are um, around. Just a couple, just a minute um, on, on treatment options. We've heard about detox, we've heard about rehab. Keep in mind, um, oftentimes when people come out of detox or when the people come out of rehab, they feel like they're cured, they feel like they've got this, right? Um, they may be in a much better place when they come out, but they still need the support of you for a very, very, very long time. The other, the, the, the last uh, treatment technique is uh, something called medication-assisted treatment. And luckily now, that's kind of being incorporated into detox programs and rehab programs. And what that is, um, is medications that kind of do the heavy lifting and kind of help blunt cravings and, and, and take care of kind of some of the biochemical changes. So rehab and uh, counseling can be more effective. And those are medications like buprenorphine or suboxone or methadone or, or Vivitrol. Now, evidence kind of shows, like science shows that those medications combined with counseling set up people for success, you know, right? There's not one solution that's right for every single person, um, but it's important to know that there's a couple options out there. Now, unfortunately, for a, for a long time, getting access to those types of medications was very hard. Getting appointments into doctors that prescribed those medications was very difficult. Um, I think I heard somebody maybe say something about that. So we're trying, as a medical community in Western New York and in, in, in the greater Buffalo area, trying very hard to increase access to those uh, those types of providers that can help provide the medication while the counselors provide the counseling aspect and really try to position people and position folks to, to um, be lined up for success. So I, I will say that in the middle of June, almost every hospital in the greater Buffalo area will have access to a network of about 20, over 20 addictions clinics scattered around Western New York that will be able to place people in from the emergency department in about 48 hours from their time in the ER of June that that will start. And, we'll, and, and these are people that um, will be able to provide medication-assisted treatment and counseling all together. So again, I just I want to thank the, the four storytellers tonight. I think we're going we're gonna to have their family, some family members come up. Uh, thank you all for coming. And if you have any questions after, um, that will be a great time to ask. So thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Lynch. And as you said, yeah, we do have some family members, not specifically family members related to our four storytellers today. We have three people, storytellers, that want to tell their stories of who they have lost in their life because people die, 
there's a family member left. There's a family left. There are sometimes children, there are parents, there are siblings, and we have those stories for you tonight. Our first storyteller tonight is Ashley, and I will ask you the simple question, who did you lose? I lost my dad May 25th of 2014 at the age, I was 22, he was 52. We're coming up on that anniversary. How do you feel today? I miss him. I miss him every day. Tell me about your dad. Growing up, what kind of dad? He was funny. He, he was a lover. He loved us kids. But he loved his drugs more. He would do anything to make me smile. He'd take the shirt off his back for me. He would do anything in this world for anyone. But he had a deeper addiction. As a kid growing up, when did you realize something's different than what I see with my friends or just something's not right? Or did you know that? I knew when I was placed in the foster home because of his behavior. I was kindergarten. A person came to my house and said, you need to leave. You need to go to this house. Nothing's right. You need to go. I remember to this day, she let me take some of my toys. She gave me a, a Star Crunch snack. And I'll never forget because she had a bracelet on that I'll never, I'll never get that image out of my head. And she said, you need to go. And she took me, she opened the door, she took me in. I didn't like her. Still to this day, I know where her house is. I know the family. I still do not want to talk to her because I was angry for being taken away from my family. It was hard because my teachers knew, but I didn't know they knew. I thought it was a normal life to live that, oh, daddy's just drunk right now. Daddy's blaring music. It's normal. It's my everyday. I, it was normal for me, my brother and sister to be angry. It was normal for us kids to fight. But it wasn't normal for my dad to drink. It wasn't normal for my dad to take pills. It wasn't normal to have people in our house all hours of the night. People getting arrested on our front porch. It wasn't normal. It just wasn't normal. And after I came home, they told me my dad went to rehab. And I thought, everything would be great. Dad's getting help. He's going to be happy. That wasn't the end. He went into rehab about six times after that. Different periods. I think his longest of being clean was seven months. I, many times I would go to meetings with him growing up. I mean... I was an Al-Anon and an Alateen, and that very that helped. That helped me, but it didn't help him. Did he know? Did he know that this was hurting the family? Did he know the end result was very bad? He knew, but he did. I don't think he cared. I think he was just worried about himself and getting those pills, taking those pills, and trying to fix his broken life and his broken heart. How did the pills start? Was it a prescription? It started because, I want to say it was about two, about, about 1992, my dad hurt himself at work. He was an electrician by trade, very good at it. He got electrocuted, fell off a ladder. 
and they gave him prescriptions. He was very good at telling them, oh, my back hurts, I got back pain. Then he saw other doctors, ran prescriptions, the same prescriptions from two different doctors. He did everything he possibly could to get those pills because that's what he needed. And then it, he drank on top of taking pills, on top of finding out what else was out there. Um, he is very known in the Tonawanda community. He is an alumni. Um, everybody knew him. The courts knew him. He was in and out of jail. He, police would stop him. What are you doing? Oh, I'm drunk. Take me. He didn't stop him. Do you think about blaming somebody? Do you, do you blame somebody? I blame him. And I would be lying if I said I didn't blame myself. Because I tried to save him so many times. I stopped my life for him. I quit school because I needed to take care of my dad. I stopped socializing because I needed to take care of my dad. I got a job to pay for my dad to live. People would give me money and I would give them, I would turn around and give it to my father because my dad needed food in his house. I did everything I possibly could to make him happy. I was the parent. He was the child. And that's no way to live. And in real life now, you, you are a parent. You have a good boy. Yes, I do. What's his name? His name's Aiden. He just turned six on Sunday. <laughs> Thanks for sharing your story. You're welcome. Our next storyteller tonight is Amanda, and I'll ask you the same question. Who did you lose? I lost my brother, Dean. Your brother, Dean? Yeah. Local he, guy? Local guy, went to school here. He was the gentle giant of them all. Six foot four. Three WBEN four. Buffalo, WKSE HD3, Niagara Falls. He would help anybody. He would meet someone on the street. If they needed a ride, he'd put them in his car, I'm sure. Give him your shirt off your back. But he was just full of love and energy, and he was the best. You're the big sister. Yeah, so the little big on, sister. Falls on you to kind of look after your, Absolutely. your brother. Absolutely, yeah. When did you first know something was not right? I mean, it was 2011, really, when my dad called and said that Dean was going to the Renaissance house. And it kind of shocked me because before that, it was just kind of like the normal teenage life that you thought, like, okay, you went to parties or something. But 2011, it like hit home when he went to the Renaissance house. I'm pretty sure it was for crack at that time, which is scary because then he's 19 years old. And that was the first. There was no reason to say why he would go there because the life that we had when we were younger was so good. Tell me about family life growing up. So there's five of us. <laughs> My one little sister, the baby's right over there. Um, we had a big house. It was like a duplex house, but we had the whole yard. The guy that lived next to us let us do whatever we wanted. And then when we moved, we had another big house with a huge yard. We had trampolines, pools, hockey, any sport that you could think of, we did. All of us were always together. 
Dad did everything with them. Mom did everything with us. It was everything. All of us were just always together. Crazy Italian family that you think of. It was the Bentleys. I swear, if you lived on our road, you knew when we were home, you heard the doors opening, the kids going. It was the, your typical good upbringing life. And it was good, and it was so much fun. So when he got into stuff, it, even at his funeral, people would come up to be like, what happened? How did this happen? You didn't look at Dean or look at any of these, any of these guys up here and girl. But you look at them and you don't see what you think an addict is. And you look at Dean and you would never think he would be an addict or the junkie. It wasn't him. Functioning addict? Is that the is That's that exactly word? what they are. Completely functional. He would come to my house. He would go home and... You lost me. There we go. <laughs> he would have his children or his son and you would never know, but he could tell you, like, I can do this every day. Like, you won't know. And that's what it was. But you knew when he did get bad, he was gone. He disappeared. Do you know where he was going? Because it's your neighborhood? Ah, we do. We know where he was going. We knew who he was with. At, we didn't know at that moment, but we knew who the people were. My dad always told him, you are who your friends are. And those people that he chose to be in his life were anything but friends, truly. But that's who he associated with, and that's who you become. And that's the terrible part of this journey in the addiction. If you associate with any of those people again, you just go back. It doesn't matter if you go and get clean. I could probably talk without it, but. <laughs> Amanda, how long ago did you lose your brother? In February of this year, February 11th. How are you today? It's very fresh. I can say every day is different. So some days I'm really good. And I think in my family, like, I'm the older sister that you all hate, literally. <laughs> I keep it in line with people. I make sure, like, my little sister's getting married. I'll be like, did you do this, this, this? My other little sister, she has her stuff. What do you need? My older brother. I'm that sister that you're like, just leave me alone. So I try to make sure everyone's okay, and my mom and dad, my grandparents before me. So every day is really different, but if I stay busy, I know that's I know I keep, oh, I'm okay, but if I lose it, I'll come back. I know he would need me to do certain things. That's what, when he was alive, if he needed, when he needed rehab, it was me and my parents. We were calling, and the help to get them is one of the impossible tasks. So if you see someone struggling, that task to get them help is so important, but I'm going to tell you it is so hard because on top of getting a hold of someone who will take excuse me, insurance or payment or however they want to help you, there's the whole person of Dean you have to go. And he would go, but they know after the first time of rehab how bad it is. In the sense, not that they could be in the most luxurious place. My brother went to beautiful rehabs. It's the fact that they have to get clean all over again. And that's what hurts. That's the worst part, is that first week. I mean, anyone who knows me, so this will be detailed, 
I will say that birth was the worst pain in the world, this is worse. So comparing that for me is like to the ends, but he would do it, and I think he did it five times. He would go and get clean and do great, and he would tell my dad I messed up or tell one of us I messed up. So that's what hurt. He had all the tools, and it just didn't stick on him. There you go. Sorry. Do you blame somebody? I, oh, I'm good. I think it's just when I stop talking. <laughs> um, I would love to really blame people, and I, I do point my finger at some individuals. I do. But the ultimate decision and the, that choice made was by my brother's or by my brother, he made that choice. He, that one time, and it was the love of his life all over. So I wanna blame people, and trust me, I am fighting to blame those people right now. When, when you talked about blaming himself, the row behind you, I saw some heads nod. Mm -hmm. Is that, that's, that's hard to take that blame, but. Yeah. That might be the way it is. Yeah. Thank you for your story, Amanda. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. <laughs> and that brings us to Mary Beth and the story of your loss. Can you tell me who you lost? I lost my son, Aaron. How old was your son? He passed away two weeks before his 24th birthday. Tell me about your boy. You have, you have two boys, correct? I have two boys. Yeah, here's my oldest. Here's my boy. Best day of my life, one of the best days of my life was when he was born. He was a beautiful baby. He was a beautiful boy, as everybody's children are. He was a normal boy. He grew up, loved sports, um, loved the outdoors, loved the hunt, loved the fish, loved to go snowboarding. Um, just was your typical boy. Typical boy growing up in a typical family. Describe typical. I mean, tell me about growing up and, and what you guys did. You said hunting, fishing, but I, I guess I'm wondering, was there any sign that this was going to happen? No, not for me. Not at all. Um, uh, when I grew up in a typical family, just a small family of four. We're not from here. We're from St. Louis, Missouri area. And when we moved up here, we had just us, but Western New York is so great, so we soon made tons of friends, good friends, family friends. Um, so I knew all of his friends, knew all their families. We did things together. He was involved, we were involved in our community. He played ball in the community. Um, he just had what I would term a typical childhood. I think he had a very nice childhood. I mean, they. They didn't really want for anything. They might have been a little spoiled. <laughs> Were you an involved mother? I mean, yes. You know, some moms are and some aren't. Just very right. involved. I was okay. very busy. I was running two different directions all the time. Um, I was his dead mother and his Cub Scout back. He just did all the things that, and both my children did all the things that a typical child would do. You're in scouts, you're in sports. We were running from one sporting event to another sporting event to scouts and squeezing in homework every night. You're describing a lot of families I know. I think yeah. a lot of families we all know. Yeah. Growing up and just doing regular stuff. Right, right. Can we fast forward to the day you got a call 
that drugs were in his life. Yes. That was the, it was just the most unbelievable call that I had ever gotten. I was in Coles of all places. I was just shopping. And I got a phone call from my son that I needed to come and pick him up. And I knew he was out with his friend, and he had very good friends. And he was with a very good friend, as a matter of fact. And he said, well, why do I need to pick you up? Where's, where's Jake? And when he told me that I had to pick him up because he was at the police station, I'm like, well, why? What are you doing there? And what happened? And he told me he was picked up for drugs. So now in my head, I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, marijuana, and that was bad enough. But I just put everything down and got out to my car and went to pick him up. And I was met by somebody I'd known because um, we knew people in the community. And he told me what was going on. I didn't even get to see my son at that time. He wanted to tell me what was going on. And I couldn't believe it. I have no idea how he could have been doing what he was doing because he was injecting heroin at that point. How does it get that far? And I don't even see that, but I didn't. It's like going from zero to 60 in a blink. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I didn't, I was like, oh, we can fix this. We can fix this. I had no idea. We can fix this. We were taking him down to ECMC, and, and the message I kept getting from everybody that came in contact with him is, oh, this one's salvageable. Didn't really know what they meant by that. This one's salvageable. Salvageable. I Describe heard that. what they meant. I, I think I know what it means, but tell me. Well, as I was, I had a lot to learn at that point, but the recovery rate is pretty small. Well, it was, and that was the statistics I was given at the point. But the first person I met at ECMC, the counselor, they were not going to keep him there overnight. They were going to let him come home and detox and tell me everything that I needed to do and watch for. This is all so new to me. I had no idea what was in store for him. And he detoxed pretty well. But um, she told me that they weren't going to keep him, that you know, he wasn't severe enough. And I couldn't understand that. I guess I didn't think it was severe enough because I didn't see anything. But she told me, we don't say this to many people. This is what they told me. I don't know if they do or not. But they said, he's, he's salvageable. He's, he's one of them that can make it. He seems to be very polite. He's very agreeable. He's very, um, he wants help. So I took him home. I was given the name of counsel and met with counsel right away. And when we went to meet with the lawyer, he flat out asked him everything that had happened. Um, come to find out, it was, it was a total setup. His friends didn't know what to do. His friends totally set him up, which was probably a good thing. Are you talking like an intervention? No when he was busted for the drugs, that was a total setup. The entire thing was a setup. He was, More his friends, it was, gotcha. yeah. So um, his friends didn't know what to do. They didn't know how to tell us. They thought we were too strict. So we can't tell his parents they're too strict. I'm like, what were you thinking? But it was probably one of the best things that might have happened because um, when he was involved in the legal system, he was able to get some of the help that we probably would have never been able to get them, even with means and with insurance, it's difficult to get them help. So when we met with counsel, they asked him because they figured out they couldn't, and I didn't know what was going on at the time. I didn't know it was a sting. I didn't know how he had gotten busted and caught. And 
when he was explaining everything to his legal counsel, the guy asked him, he said, do you want me to make this go away or do you want help? Because we can make this go away. And he said, I want help. So he truly wanted help, um, but that was, that was hard to get. That was, it was hard for him. He, I don't think he knew what he was up against and what he was facing as far as help. But um, then at that point, the people that we came in contact with again, they told me, oh, I think this one can really make it. I, I think he's salvageable. But I heard that on two different occasions from a counselor and from a police officer. And after I lost my son, I'll never forget the police officer saying to me, I'm so sorry I ever said that to you. Because I kept thinking, too, he is salvageable. He's a good kid. He was just, he was my boy. And I would have never dreamt this for him. We went to church every Sunday. He went to a parochial school. He hung around with good people. We were involved with good people. We lived in a community that was not what you would typically think of as a drug community. Um, and so when they told me that he could, this one might make it, I believed them. I didn't think it would be any. I didn't think otherwise. I didn't think otherwise. Obviously, you never think your child. Never. Um, did, the, did the church talk to them? Because you said you were a church-going family. Yes, so I'll never forget a homily that the priest had one Sunday. My children were high school age at the time, and he had called all the high school students in the congregation forward. Of course, my children didn't want to go up, and I'm like, you got to go got to get up there. You're of age, and they're going to see. Get up there. So they went up there, and he had all the high school-aged children from like 13 to 18 sitting in front of us. And at that time, there was this um, page of statistics that was circulating around. I remember reading it here at school. Um, statistics about um, youth from this age to this age, and the percentage of them that would die in car accidents, and the percentage of teenage pregnancies and the percentage of drug overdoses and all these different percentages. I know what he was reading from. I saw the publication circulating prior and you think, oh, this is so sad. But he put it in real life terms. He had these kids sitting up there and he was great at math. He knew how many kids were sitting up there and he started reading those statistics and he said, oh, that percent, and I don't even remember, it's been so long, that would be two of these kids, which two are we giving up? And when he was going through car accidents, teen pregnancies, all the different things that young people face. And I'll never forget when he got to the drug statistic, oh, we'll lose, and I don't know what the number was, three of them. Which of these three children are we giving up? And I remember sitting in my seat saying, oh, well, I don't think I'll have to worry about that. My children were involved in sports. I was running them like crazy here and there. They were working by the time they were 15, working, doing sports, going to school. And I didn't think I had to worry about that one. The one I was most concerned with was the car accident. That scared me to death, but not the drugs. Not the drugs. Never in a million years. Would I have thought that that would have touched my family? But that was the one. He was one of the statistics sitting up front. Mary Beth, knowing what you know now, to talk to yourself before and give yourself advice, knowing what you know now, what would you say to you before your son got into drugs 
or before he passed away? What would you want to say to yourself as a parent, parent to parent? I guess not to be so naive, but that's really hard to do when, I mean, that's easy for me to say now, but back then, I wouldn't have thought that I was naive. I knew my children, and I knew them well. And he didn't really show me any signs and symptoms of not drug abuse, um, maybe a little bit of rebellion, but not so much. He was a pretty good kid for me, for the most part. He hated school. That was my biggest problem with him. He hated school from day one of kindergarten, so it was not like it was a, it was not a change in his behavior. It was just so, so I didn't really have any warning signs because that, that wasn't a change in his behavior. He just hated school. Um, but if I could look back now, I guess I would like to know that drugs are everywhere, everywhere. I built a house in a neighborhood, and drugs was right across the street, and a dealer one street over. And it is not in an area that I would have ever thought that that's what you would find. Um, and we were in ski club when my children were younger, and I came to find this out later when he was in rehab, that he was approached when we were on church outings, not from the people in our group, but we were in ski club, and the kids would go off he was snowboarding, and they'd go to train park, and we had him. We didn't, that was before everybody had cell phones. He had the little two-way radios. We had blinkers on their helmets. We could always find our kids on the hill, and we would always ski over to train park. We'd watch them do their jumps. We'd watch them do their tricks, but they were older, and they were with their friends, and they were safe. I thought they were safe. We were all out there together. We were a big community out there together. But they were approached by people, not necessarily that went to school with him, but people that knew people, that knew somebody else, and all of a sudden you're meeting people. And he was introduced, well, asked, and I'm sure he probably tried, to marijuana right there on the slopes at the ski resort when he was 12. And I would have never known that. So I guess if I would go back and tell myself, I would want to know they are everywhere. Drugs are everywhere. And your young people know exactly where they're at. They know where they're at. They know the houses that they're at. They know where to go. They're in school. They're everywhere. The drugs are everywhere. And I didn't know that. Do they discriminate? Not at all. I went to all the meetings, I sat in meetings, and at first I was mortified. I didn't want anybody to know. I couldn't believe this happened to my family. I didn't know what I was gonna do to help my son. And I didn't want anybody to know, because it was, it was embarrassing to me at first, because that's not the life we live. That's not how he was brought up. And when I went to meetings to get help for myself, I sat in those meetings with pretty prominent people which helped me because I didn't realize at the time that it touches, it touches many people. It touches many people, and no, it does not discriminate. Mary Beth, thank you for sharing your story. It's an opioid conversation tonight, and I'm going to run down the back row, and, and we keep using the word opioid, and I have this feeling someone doesn't know what that is or doesn't know what it applies to you. Define opioids to you as you might ask for them, get them, want them. What's, what's opioids to you? 
uh, dope. It was it was it was dope. It was um, asking for slang. Yeah. For slang, I mean, there's a million words for it. H horse, smack. People have different words and different like lingo as to where you go. When you're in the falls, it's called one thing. When you're in Buffalo, it's called another. So, it just depends on who you're talking to, you know. From prescription to street drugs, that's all opioids. Yes, yes, it's a broad category. You can get stuff shipped over from China they never even heard of. For you, words that people might want to listen for when their kids are talking. For drugs. Honey. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm old now, I don't know about kids. <laughs> they can have new ones. I don't know, you got weed, you got pot, you got special K, you got meth, you got crystal meth, you got LCD, um, you got shrooms, you got dope, you got H, you got coke, you got crack, you got, I mean, those are just real names, those aren't even slang names. I mean, you got Molly, you got, I could go on and on. Jeff, you were nodding when, when we heard that drugs are everywhere. Do you still see them? Absolutely. Um, today, no, I don't. I part myself away from that. And Billy, thoughts on that? Absolutely, I totally, I agree 100%. Um, <clears throat> drugs are, drugs are everywhere. Like just because you think you got, a, you're taking a little prescription for a backache, you know, any kind of painkiller, you know, make sure that it's not a controlled substance because you know when you're off it, it's gonna hit you and it's not pleasant at all. So, but I just want to say one thing on the. Um, uh, when people are, like uh, the, she was talking about the statistics of like oh how many like, say like two out of ten people really make it, um, the best thing for me was to focus on those two people that made it instead of those people that didn't because that puts me in like a negative stigma and a negative mindset. I need to be able to like how do they do it? I want to know what they did. So that's exactly what I did. I took action. I took suggestions, and I did what was they were told, and here I am. So. And here you are. Thank you, Billy. Uh, we are going to be opening up for questions from the audience. If someone wants to ask a question, raise your hand. We've got a couple people watching through the audience. Uh, don't be shy if you do have questions. But I also want to turn to our panel. We have a panel on the left, a panel on the right. And I'll ask our panelists if someone wants to show with a hand, if, you, if you'd like to ask a question or maybe something that was said in these stories tonight resonated with you and you want to kind of prove that point. Would any of our panelists like to chime in at this time? And we'll open the floor to you. Yes, go ahead. Hi, I'm Jody from Horizon Health Services. Um, I want to thank everyone for sharing their stories. I've been in the field for 17 years, and there isn't a day that goes by that these stories help me um, in terms of the work that I do every day. Um, powerful, really powerful, and thank you. Um, that's really all I wanted to say, is just to thank them. Judge. Yes, I also want to thank them. Uh, these are stories that, unfortunately, I listen to on a daily basis, but there's also the successes, as Billy's pointed out. And one of the things we do in drug court is I have to change my demeanor a little bit, going from a nasty guy to sort of uh, learning about the uh, people that are in my court. 
and I try to get to know them personally. And uh, I understand, and you have to understand, that there is going to be relapse, and you have to learn how to deal with that. And we do that. I mean, I sort of treat it like a baseball game of three strikes. But I let, I let the people know up front that you need to succeed, and we encourage success. And the way we do that is, is that I explain to them what the alternative is. And the alternative is never good. And the other thing we do is, uh, people, people, I've had parents come to me and say, you know, my child relapsed, why didn't you incarcerate them? Because then they wouldn't get the drug in jail. And my answer to that is very simple. Incarceration is not the solution. Because when they get out from a week of sanctioning, they have a greater uh, need or feel the greater need to have that drug. What we do is, I start out, and, and I'm sure they know, that we have group sessions, they go to groups, we have self-help, and the way I handle it is, we increase the self-help, we increase the groups, we increase the counseling. And I think parents need to know that because I've had parent backlash at me about not jailing their child for their, for their event. And, and simply, I don't do that. Can I chime in for a second? Um, you were saying that if you sanction somebody, and I just wanted to back you up on this. If you sanction somebody, then their urge is greater to want to use. Also, their overdose rate is greater. So when you're keeping the drug from them, you know, or whatnot, and they come out and use, they have a greater chance of overdosing. So, I mean, you can use that, too, when you have a parent backlash at you. You're welcome. Thank you. Kids Escaping Drugs, obviously you represent them. Explain just quickly what Kids Escaping Drugs is for people that don't know, and then... Kids Escaping Drugs is um, the foundation that supports the Renaissance Campus, which is an adolescent treatment facility in West Seneca. Um, and I also want to thank all of you for your bravery and, and for sharing your story and sharing the most personal times in your life. What I would like to hear from a couple of you is um, what in your recovery has been key to your success? You know, you all talked about the amount of time that you have clean and you're all doing wonderful, but I would really love to hear you highlight what about that time that you've had clean do you think stands out most for you? Number one, am I on? No? Uh, all right. Number one thing for me is my support group. Uh, you got to eliminate the people, places, and things it, if you're going to make it. You really do. Um, you gotta how big is that group, can I ask? What, I'm sorry. Your support group, how big is your support group? I can count on one hand. That's it. I can count on two fingers how many friends I got right now, but I'm okay with that. I'm happy with what I got right now. Anybody else? Tony. The main thing that uh, I'd like to speak on is, in, in recovery at least, I have been able to speak to a lot of different doctors as to why you know, I had certain inclinations to do certain things, and I actually came up with a bipolar one diagnosis in full sobriety. So I've had a natural disposition to um, to opiates my whole life, and I had no idea. I mean, not only did they make me feel great, but they made me feel normal, you know? Um, and I'd like to thank, you know, the Kids Escaping Drugs Campus and Renaissance House Campus, because they just, they, they, they saved my life. I mean, 
programs like this are saving lives. Um, and it's not only important that they figure out how to live without drugs, but the, it's, mental health is so deeply tied into this, and it's so difficult for people to get the mental help they need, especially in high school, because every student has something, you know? Everybody's got something going on, but maybe the main thing we need to stop looking at is, you know, does he look grungy, and do they look like they have track marks on their arms, or their eyes are red, but you need to start saying, how upset is this person? Like, what, what's driving their emotions in the first place? A lot of parents I know, especially from my father, he didn't believe as a such thing as I may be depressed, I, I may have a mental illness. A lot of older generations don't believe in things like that. But this today in age, it is so out there. People struggle every single day. They struggle in their minds, they struggle in their lives, they struggle no matter what. Asking someone, hey, are you okay? Hey, do you need help? Hey, I'm here for you. Hey, do you need a vent? Is going to save a life, one way or another. Mental health is very serious and it ties into a lot of addiction problems because when you're down and you t try to take an upper and then you take a downer and then an upper, you're crazy. You go, you spiral. Is that the new word now? You're spiraling? <laughs> yeah, you might be onto something there. <laughs> Amanda, I think you talked about Narcan as being something that now is just kind of the process, or, or an addict knows that Narcan is always there, and Dr. Lynch brought up the availability of, of Narcan. What are, you thought, what are your thoughts on Narcan? I, as much as I know Narcan can save their life, the day that we lost my brother. Um, I mean, to give you a glimpse of the day so you never want to get it is I was first of my siblings to get there with my dad in the house. My grandfather came rushing out. And there's people coming in and out of the house because they're trying to bring my brother back. And one of those people come out, an EMT or a fireman, I'm not sure which one it was, and I said, what's going on? Did you narc him? It was like the first thing that really came to my mind because I'm like, okay, if he's going to make it, he needs those narcs. And they used it two times before, and he didn't come back from it. So it was kind of, I'd be lying to you if I said that on my way to this house that I thought my brother made it because I had a really bad feeling. And I just gotten off the phone with my sister about him. But Narcans to me, I kind of hate them. They, I think my brother had been Narcan 10 times in this journey, maybe 12 by the time it was his time to go. And to me, a Narcan, and maybe someone will agree, is just a thing that makes them say, I can do this again because there's a Narc in my pocket and I'll get shot up and I'll come back. I'll be really mad when I wake up because I was supposed to be high but it just gives them another chance to get high again. So I am not a fan of Narcans. I do believe they save a life. And if someone's gonna get clean, they're gonna do it themselves. It doesn't depend on a Narcan. And if someone doesn't wanna be clean, then you're either gonna lose your battle at some point or another. Because even if Narcan brought my brother back that day, there is not one ounce of me that doesn't believe 
that it would have happened another day. It doesn't matter if it was in that house that I want to destroy or if it was somewhere else. Yeah, so. Billy's backing you up on that from the back row here. Yeah. Kevin Hart. Thank you, Nick. I literally and figuratively really don't belong up here tonight. I, I had to be dragged up here tonight at the last minute. I, uh, I also don't think that when I ran for the county legislature, I ran to fix potholes and to make our parks nicer and, of course, keep taxes down because that's what all politicians do. I didn't have any idea that I would be on a panel like this tonight. But a few years ago, I was in a committee meeting and Avi Israel was there. And if anybody has heard Avi's story, you know he lost his son, Michael, who committed suicide after being hooked on prescription opioids. And, and it was just a terrible thing. And it's a heartrending story. Uh, and I remember after that, uh, talking with my fellow legislators and saying, wow, that was, that was really something. But what does that have to do with us? We're potholes and we're parks and we're other things like that. And then at budget time, at the public hearing, a number of parents came who had lost kids. It was, it was nearing the height of the epidemic. And it all of a sudden became more and more pressing. And, you know, like a lot of public officials around the country, we were a little bit late to this, this problem. But we finally became conscious that we could no longer do nothing. So we were able to find some money and start funding things, a hotline first. Then we dipped into our, our uh, fund balance, our, our rainy day account, and took a million dollars out of that to, to do some work. Uh, normally, we use that to fix potholes. Uh, but, you know, there will always be more potholes, uh, except in the city of Tonawanda. <laughs> anyway, it, uh, it, it's because of stories like yours here tonight that we have awakened to this problem. And I guess my, my question for our, our guests here tonight, our storytellers, is, you know, you see the response to the crisis. A lot of it is Narcan. A lot of it is education. Some of it is referral. If, if there were more money available, where do you think we ought to be spending it? What's the most serious? There, there are many needs, but what's the most serious need out there if we could find another half million, million, whatever? Let's go with Jeff first. You, you seem to be loud. Rehabs? We'll all agree. Oh, agree. Rehabs. It all went to rehabs. When I got clean, there was probably like two or three options. That's it. That's it. I would like to see some funding going. I guess what I don't understand is that when you can point out, hey, they're dealing drugs here, they're dealing drugs here, they're dealing drugs there. Why are our hands tied legally that we can't do anything about that? Because I was told, yeah, we know about that one, and we're watching that guy, and we know all about that one. And if we were to go in and raid and shut them down, there are going to be two more to take their place tomorrow. What kind of an answer is that when you lose your child? What kind of an answer is that? Why are these things so readily available? Why is it easier to get your hands on drugs than it is to get your hands on alcohol? Which I know they're all drugs, but why was it so easy for them to have those at their disposal? I'd like to see some money going towards that. Why are we not shutting down these big drug houses? We know they're there. Every now and then you hear of a bust, and that's enough to keep some of us satisfied. And I know there's more going on than that, but 
that's from an angry parent standpoint. Why are we not shutting these things down? I heard that loud and clear, right? Yeah, you did. We know where they're at. And Amanda, I know that you're working hard to help fix that problem locally. Can you explain a little bit? Yeah. Um, So when my brother died, he died in a house that is basically a safe haven for people to go use at. Um, My dad and my grandmother and my grandfather and I went to a city council meeting last month to really address this to get in hopes of all my research to make some progress. And the problem with these houses is that there's laws that protect us in our homes. So if in reality, we can all go home, buy a bottle of booze and get drunk and nobody can say anything even if we're really bad because we're in our own home. So my brother dies in a drug house. It's known a drug house. The whole city knows it's a drug house. What do you do? So I found a law, it's called the Criminal Nuisance Act Law. Now the people in this home that are using the drugs and affiliated with my brother's death, even though his death is really was his responsibility, um, they don't care about human life. They don't care if someone overdoses because the night that we laid my brother to rest, there was an overdose there and the homeowners said they will never call for an overdose for drugs and she won't, which makes you sick. Think if your kid passed out, the worst of the worst, be my dad, your kid falls, passes out, Narcan can bring him back, there's a chance, but nobody gives him the chance. So this law will initially, if there is um, illegal activity affiliated with the law, that it has to all work together, which this does, thank Jesus. But they can shut the home down for a year and everybody has to leave the premises. In that house, she was arrested and the son was arrested and she was arrested, arrested for a nuisance law. So it's all tied together, but to get that to happen is so hard because we all have our own rights. But my brother didn't have a right. He just laid there dying and there was nothing more that someone could do at that moment because we didn't know until 911 was called and how long did that take? How long would you wanna know if you, your son fell down a flight of stairs even? And someone was there to climb over, but they're like, oh, he'll just, he'll get up soon. Don't worry about it. And waits. But then it's not enough. That's why there needs to be voices in a community. I'm just one voice, and I'll speak as loud as I can. I've always talked. I'm a big talker. But I'll take action when I know I can, and it's really hard, but sometimes you have to get really uncomfortable to get comfortable and I won't stop until I know this house is gone. Other houses like it. I know this. there's not just one in our city, which is so sad, but this one in our city is too close to my house, too close to my nieces and nephews' schools. That's scary. So I'll work with any city councilman. I will go to any meeting. I will fight any fight that I can to get an answer to get this taken care of. 
I think we've heard tonight that there are many ways to fall into that hole of addiction. There are a lot of ways to climb out of that hole of addiction. If, and if this is one of those ways that helps to get someone out of that hole, and if it's a matter of a simple law going into place, that I, I think this is a law in Buffalo that's, that's active, right? It's okay. a Buffalo law, and we just have to adopt it. I know there's ends so we don't know. Is yeah, yeah. It, it might yeah. forever time, but so where? That's all right. I'm going to pass over. I to told Billy you I was loud. <laughs> Billy wanted to uh, chime in on that yeah. as well. All right, yeah, I just wanted to uh, just touch on one thing. Um, when you asked the um, main thing, like, how do I get through and how do we get for For me, um, <clears throat> my desire to stay clean has to be stronger than my desire to get high. Um, bottom line, person's got to want it. You know, you can have Narcan, you can have rehabs, you can have support groups, but the bottom line is the person through and through has to want to do it. You know what I mean? Because, uh, and um, on your sir, I... Uh, for, for us, like, I would, I would speak, uh, you know, I, I'd like to speak on our behalf for the reason, like, I feel is, like, rehabs is, like, really essential is because if, like, someone was saying, if you go to ECMC, they're going to turn you away. Yeah. If you don't, if you're not having a seizure from alcohol or a seizure yeah. from benzos, which you can die, those are the only two drugs you can buy, die on, benzos and alcohol. If you're withdrawing from heroin or anything like that, they don't care. They're going to give you something to calm your stomach down and, like, an ibuprofen and send you on your way. That's what they do. So with more funding, maybe a little easier, maybe more beds, I don't know, but people are dying because they're turning them away. And, you know, it's, it's sad, so that's all I got. Thank you, Billy. Um, I want to turn things over to Dr. Lynch and, and give a number that people can get in touch if they need the help, like a starting point. Do you have information for us? Yep, I, I meant to offer this up before, but so the, the Erie, County, uh, Erie County Crisis Service is actually sponsors a uh, opioid epidemic hotline, which is available 24-7. And basically, um, the, how, that's kind of still an evolving process, and they're still working on making this a better system. Um, but basically, this number is set up 24-7 uh, for, pa for patients, for those who are addicted, for family members, uh, for concerned friends, to call and get, um, get linked to resources to try to help get help. And again, this is not perfect, um, but it's a resource that we haven't always had. Uh, and I think this is a step kind of in the right direction to, to provide some assistance, you know, during the night or when a family realizes there's a problem and they don't know where else to go, this may be a good place to start. So that number is 831-7007. And if you just Google Erie County uh, Opioid over Hotline, uh, that number comes up pretty quickly. But again, not the solution for everything, um, but it's a resource that you, know, you might want to keep in mind. 831-7007. All right. Thank you very much, Dr. Lynch. And we haven't touched on tobacco being a gateway, but I do know that on, a, on one level, it's a starting point. Any of you smoke? Okay. I want to talk to Lindsay uh, from Roswell, because you, you talk about smoking and vaping as being one of those things that kind of opens the door. So thank you once again for all of you for your stories. You really are the true heroes of today. Um, I'm a Tonawanda High School alumni. It's my 10 year reunion this year. So I'm very passionate about this community. And what I do really want to say is I don't think we think about vaping as the same level of an issue as what's going on, right, with this crisis. 
But what I can say is I run a youth program called Reality Check, and I gave presentations over the past two days at Tonawanda. And when I was talking about vaping, there was a lot of discussion. Um, and I had a 12-year-old in one of the classes tell me they needed help because they were addicted to nicotine from their vape product. And I had no idea what to even say to them. And a lot of the students don't take it very seriously. Um, they think that there's nothing wrong with it. They think that it's better than smoking, so there's not too much of an issue. And I think while we can all see it might have, of course, lesser effects than tobacco, I think we all need to come together as a community and really understand that regardless, young people like that shouldn't be using any product whatsoever, especially something that could be leading them into addiction so easily. Um, I think all of us know that if you are a smoker, nicotine is obviously a very addictive substance, and we need to recognize that this could be one of the ways that's really easily leading into more and more use of things. Nobody really wants to talk about gateway. They want to talk about things after they've happened, happened. but I think all of you guys could probably speak to starting with something, right? So that's what I have to say. Ashley's going to, before I get to, to you, Judge, uh, Ashley wants to answer to that. I want to know, okay, my circumstance is obviously different, which is a lot of people can have a lot of different circumstances. I smoke cigarettes. My parents smoke cigarettes. My dad did drugs. My dad drank alcohol. I refuse. There's a, there's a stopping point for some people. I think it's more so in the mind than it is so a gateway. I think more people nowadays are more curious as to not knowing knowledge. They're curious because they don't, okay, I can get cigarettes at 18 or I can get cigarettes from this guy because his sister is 18. I don't necessarily feel as though it's not a gateway for everybody. No, and she's agreeing it's not a gateway for everybody, but for, for some. Yeah, I think for some, but there, is, there yeah. are some with different minds. Oh, absolutely. And I just want to say, too, just as a young person, like as a teenager, you're not really able to make those kinds of decisions for yourself yet. You're not really able to be like, oh, I'm not going to go down that road. You don't know that yet. Obviously, us as adults, we know, okay, I'm either going to be led to addiction more easily or not. So it's just a prevention, you know. Thank you very much. I want to, before we go to the audience, I know we have a question waiting, uh, Judge Saltarelli. I just wanted to follow up on a, some of the things that Amanda mentioned. Um, first of all, the fortunate ones are the ones that get arrested. There are a large number of people who need help uh, because Narcan is an enabling substance. All it does is enable you to get to your next high. And I agree with that. And we have a law called the Good Samaritan Law that protects the addict when the person makes the phone call. I have no problem with the protecting the person that makes the phone call to come to the aid of that person. What I have a problem with is that after their Narcan, there's no accountability on a part of the victim. They should be required to seek treatment within 72 hours minimum and be hooked up with a counselor. And and I have asked Assemblyman Robin Schiminger, and I have gone to Senator Chris Jacobs, and I have written letters asking them to go to the state to change this law to require accountability. 
because it's not only it, you know there's a victim here that's overdosed but also the taxpayers of this state and this community are paying for all of this and they should expect accountability and i think it's time the governor needs to stop worrying about who's smoking marijuana when where and how and start dealing with the opioid crisis and take it seriously thank you judge and turn the microphone over to the audience here thank you yeah you're on you're okay um we talk about the school system and the kids is prevalent in the schools again this is a question for everybody how prevalent do you see it in the schools is it in the locker rooms is it in the bathrooms is it in the classrooms just in the in the hallways i don't know if everybody realizes the effect that it has on all the kids and, it, and we talk about not being discriminatory i think we need to talk about where it is in the schools as well in middle school and it's open to everybody thank you i can answer um i have a almost 16 year old stepdaughter and i asked her what's going on in school where's the drugs she says i can get them anywhere i was hanging she's an athlete she's a very good girl and she's very honest. And she says, oh, that boy, she'll point him out. And it's always the kids I did not think it would be. They are everywhere. It could be the kid that you know is the quietest. It could be the kid that is playing basketball and got practice that night. It's everyone. It's not exactly where, it's everyone. And I think nowadays parents need to now talk to their children and stop being a friend. Be a parent. Ask them what they're doing. If you have to follow them, if you have any slight idea that they're doing something they shouldn't do, you follow them in your car. You make sure that your kid is safe because that one time that you don't do it could be the last time you see your kid. The last time. Tony. To respond to the question about, you know, are they in, where are they in schools, um, they're everywhere. I mean, kids are prescribed Adderall for ADHD by ages of like 12 and 13. Like, it's, it's crazy. So by eighth grade, the kids have already learned to snort them. I mean, we were taking them before tests, and you could take them, you know, and write a whole essay in one night. Um, and as for the vaping, I mean, the drugs are in vape as well. I mean, but the thing is, it's, it's like, <laughs> I mean... They're, they're, all, they're, they're all over, but I, mean, I remember in high school buying the vape products and then mixing them with the drugs and then selling them back to the school. I mean, there's things like that that you're, you're, these kids are so easily capable of, and you can find out how to make stuff like, like dabs and hash oil right on YouTube. So we're not smoking the weed anymore. I mean, it's more, you can do a million different things with it, and it's being consumed in ways that you can't smell, in ways that you can't see, in ways you didn't even think. So. The drugs are literally being handed underneath the desks at, right before the test starts. I mean, it's everywhere. Yeah, I think that point was driven home asking for the names, and I heard about 50 different names for the drugs, and I think y'all just could have gone on forever. Uh, Jessica, thoughts? I just want to add to that, um, based on what Kids Escaping Drugs does, we have a, a program called Face to Face, and it's a community education program, and we push into middle schools and high schools all over Western New York. And we have these conversations with kids on a daily basis. And there is nowhere in a school building that's safe from any of this. These kids are using these substances everywhere and anywhere in school buildings. 
and a lot of what they tell us is very attractive about the vapes and about the pills and things like that is how easy it is to get away with those things because they don't have strong odors because they're these teeny tiny little pills that are easy to hide and they they do them everywhere but that's twenty cent right off the desk in the classroom is far too common so it can happen anywhere in the school building or in a car or on a playground or anywhere else where a bunch many kids convene Billy all right yeah I just wanted to say not only are they you know in the schools but they're at your home you know what I mean like you don't may not realize it but that medicine that you take for anxiety is a narcotic and your kids take a handful of those and that's that's all she wrote um, you know, so just be careful with really what you have in your home, home, be mindful of that, you know, are they able to access this or keep it locked up in a certain spot because these kids are smart these days, man, you know, they'll, you know, we, we're, we're, we're all salesmen up here, you know, we can sell water to a well, so, you know, we need to be very, you know, aware of how, where we keep our things, what we have in our house, because that just, that just prevents anything else from happening. You know, you know, better safe than sorry is what my mama always said. <laughs> Go ahead, Brittany. No, we don't need that. But just please, 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 I beg you, don't ever think it can't be your kid. Please. Just don't. Because, and I don't mean using. I mean, oh, my, like, Go home, be like, oh, my daughter would never touch my Xanax. I'm going to keep them right there in the cupboard. Like, you don't know. You, you don't. She might be a totally different girl at school that you're not at school with her every day. Those eight hours, she might be totally different. Like, she could be a huge seller in school. You, you have no idea. Just please don't ever think it's not my kid because that it's, it's a really bad pain to be... It's a really bad pain to not have your kids. <laughs> so just please don't ever think it's not your kids. WBEN Buffalo, WKSE HD3, Niagara Falls. My name is Debbie, and I need to speak just a little bit about Narcan. Narcan is a life-saving drug. If we did not have the use of Narcan that we do here in Erie County, the death rate would be four to five times higher than what it is now. Every administration of Narcan is an opportunity. It's an opportunity to offer recovery to people. I understand the point that the judge made about accountability, but this is a disease. And even though someone who has the disease of uh, substance use disorder may need the life-saving drug of Narcan, if you want them to be accountable and you're asking them to enroll in something in treatment within 72 hours, will you hold that same standard to a person who has a heart attack? who needs to make a lifestyle change or a dietary change, or someone perhaps who is a diabetic, who ate a cookie. At what point do you draw the line and recognize that this is a disease and we have to join together as a community in order to meet the needs of the people who have it? I agree that people need help, but we need to meet them where they are. They need help on their own terms. We do not have enough stabilization beds. We do not have enough treatment facilities. We don't have enough opportunities for people to get the help that they need. But we need to be compassionate and kind and thoughtful to people because diseases do not improve when people are ridiculed or treated unkindly. However, they do very well with support 
and kindness. Thank you. I have two people on stage. I think they want to talk about Billy. Yes, uh, I think it was Debbie. Uh, appreciate your your input. Obviously, um, I don't I don't think that none of us are uh, you know can, you know disagreeing with Narcan being a very important uh, stabilization factor for our community. But what we're saying is like there needs to be more ownership for the action of administering Narcan because like the judge said, taxpayers are paying. And for me, it gives, if, if I'm in that mindset, that gives me a green light to go out and do it again. Because I'm like, oh, they're just gonna bring me back? Cool, let's just go back and do it again. Point for me, I'm, I like everyone's different, but for me, I need tough love. If you baby me, you're gonna bury me. That's all it is for me. Dr. Lynch. I'll just, just to put it into perspective on the Narcan, um, on the Narcan topic, and, and I, I really agree with pieces of what everybody has mentioned. Um, but so here, so part of my job as an EMS medical director for fire departments and ambulance companies and part of the job of being an ER physician is we take phone calls on the medical direction line from EMS crews that are at people's houses. Sometimes people's houses where that EMS crew has just given Narcan to somebody. And now what often happens when the person is revived, they wake up somewhat angry like you had mentioned. Um, and guess what happens when they wake up and they're angry and they're not high anymore? Guess where they don't wanna go? To the hospital. And not all officers give them the choice of you're going to jail or you go to the hospital. I'll tell you what's one thing worse. They, they give them a third option. You don't have to go anywhere. So there are phone calls that are made to the hospital by the EMS crews that have given somebody Narcan and revived them. And in, in most situations, there's nothing that I can do to force them to come to the hospital. So I'm not saying that's to make, make anybody really upset, but it's, it's the fact and that's where we are today. And back to where the judge had men uh, mentioned and the legislator had mentioned, about like there are some really high level changes that need to happen about like if, if you're receiving this medication, clearly you have a big problem and we should be doing better than letting people stay in their homes or stay at a drug dealer's house after they get Narcan. Um. Just a couple random points. Uh, as you can tell, my mind's all over the place. Uh, but I think some things I forgot to mention before um, uh, is that back to the drugs are everywhere point, um, they really are, and I think we, we have heard some pretty dramatic examples, but other examples uh, that speak to the severity of the disease and how much it really consumes someone and turns into taking drugs as a necessity and not a choice, really, is that we, I've taken care of patients that have overdosed at a, a family member's funeral and taking care of moms that have overdosed in their hospital room after they have delivered a baby. So the, so it just, when, when you go home tonight, think about th that this disease is, turns into such a chronic disease that, that the use becomes a necessity and it becomes a, something that the person has to do to function and that's it. It's not really pleasure seeking anymore, it's really just uh, a functioning. And to talk about how dangerous the prescriptions are, there has been recent discussion lately that um, is short of a five-day prescription of hydrocodone or Lortab or Vicodin, really the same thing, um, as sort of as a five-day-long pre five prescription can trigger addictive behaviors in certain people. So if somebody goes and gets their wisdom teeth out and they come home with 24 or 36 tablets of hydrocodone or Lortab, there, there should be somebody that helps them through that process of taking that medication and pain control and supplementing with Motrin or Tylenol 
if it's safe because Tylenol and hydrocodone, if hydrocodone has Tylenol in it too. So you should always be looking and always being an advocate, advocate for somebody if there's other non-narcotic or non-controlled substance options. We are using a ton of non-controlled substance options right now to treat very severe injuries in the hospital that even as recent as a year or two ago, we would be giving those patients lots of hydrocodone. But no, knowing what we know now, um, those patients actually do just fine. Interestingly enough, there's an IV narcotic shortage across the country now. It's kind of a weird, uh, weird side, but it's teaching us to be very aggressive in non-narcotic options for pain control. You know, it actually works very well. Real quick, at what point do they outlaw opioids being prescribed? Like, is that on the table? Um, I, I don't think that would be a good idea. Uh, there are still patients that have injuries that, that require it. However, we as the medical community need to be very responsible in how we do this. Um, some, some physicians have taken the stance that they don't prescribe narcotics for any reason. Now, there are certain specialists that probably shouldn't be prescribing narcotics for any reason. reason. Um, however, someone that works at, at a trauma center or in an emergency room or as an orthopedic surgeon probably should have that right but they should have the responsibility and expectation that they're doing that in a very cautious way. Maybe they write five days at a time only and you have to come back every five days to get more rather than uh, even about five, you know, five, six years ago that it was not uncommon to see prescriptions of 180 tablets of hydrocodone being written for something that probably didn't need narcotics in the first place. Thank you. We have another audience question. Go ahead. Hi, thank you. Uh, my name is Samantha Little, and I work at North Point Council, and I want to thank you all for being here, especially for giving such a local face to, to addiction and recovery. And when the question came up about how to spend funding, there was a lot of, lot of response of treatment and rehab and recovery, and, and I work in the Department of Prevention Education, and so I'd just like to put a plug in for funding for prevention. And along that line, I want to turn to you guys and ask, was there anything that you could identify that might be helpful that I could incorporate into my work to help with prevention efforts as far as getting more information and education out there as for, for youth as well as for parents and family members to, to see signs. Do you have any thoughts or suggestions on what we can do on the prevention end of the continuum? I feel like I'll start with Amanda here. Thank you. Prevention is such a, I'm not sure I like this word, but I'll tell you why. Nobody wants to be an addict. They didn't wake up one morning and say, my dad says this to me all the time, he's gonna say, yep, because he told my brother, take this drug, it'll ruin your life. You could die, you won't have any money, you won't have your job, your car, your family. Who wants that? I wanna go home to my bed with my house and my kid, my husband, they don't wanna choose that life. I wanna say the prevention, I can't, I can't even say it starts at home because in my home, I'm a prude. I've never touched anything. But if they want it, they're gonna get it. 
So prevention, could I say it's with the doctors? Like Dr. Lynch said, only give them so many at a time. I mean, I don't know with Dean. I couldn't say it was because he went in the doctors and said I got hurt in football because he was so big, he was the one hurting people. So I couldn't tell you that. But there has to be something somewhere to prevent it because there's no way anyone, even with mental health or not, wants to be the addict. It, there's no way. You lose it all. Anybody else from the front row or back row? Guys in the back row? Yeah. I just believe like, if, if an addict's going to use, he's going to use. I, I mean, I'm not knocking prevention or no. you know, anything like that. It's just if I want to get high and I'm an addict or going through withdrawal, I'm going to get high. Like Billy said, I'll pull a tooth out if I have to just to go and get what I need. You know, it's, it's true. It's, I'm an addict. Ashley, thoughts? getting involved in the schools like knowing the kids and talking to them and being more active being an active parent can help social media getting the word out of where you where these kids can get help if they think they have a problem make a say for the kids that actually don't have a problem but you feel they are going to have a problem or they feel like they're going to make it okay for them to talk about it don't make it seem like oh well, if this person knows, then the whole community is going to hate me. Mm -hmm. So we need more safe places and more places where kids feel comfortable and where anybody would feel comfortable. Like, if I say if there's a, a friend, be that friend. Be that person. Always check in with your neighbor. Say, hey, do you need something? If you see something odd, come together as a community. Let's be people. Like. We all were born with a heart. Let's use it. I've got another audience question, Nick. We'll do one more audience question. Okay, so part of my question is there's um, a lot of talk about people starting to use um, prescription medications, and that's what they usually start out doing, and then it leads into more serious things. And they're buying the prescription medications from other people that are prescribed them. So why isn't there more of a regulation on prescription medications that are prescribed to people that when they go in to get a refill on their script, they're actually tested to make sure that the prescription is in their system and they can get another refill of that prescription? Because there's so many people out there that get these pain prescriptions and they don't take them. All they do is sell them. And they're targeting the younger generation of kids because they're cheap, they're easy to get, and that's where the epidemic, I believe, is starting. Yeah, actually, that's a, that's a great question. Um, for me, what I do know is that um, they do have like regulatory like DEA numbers for you know, narcotic prescriptions and stuff. But like I said, we will figure that out. We will come up with a way to do something. What, um, <clears throat> speaking from personal experience, used to be on Suboxone, okay? Um, they made you, made you take a drug test after, you know, when you got to refill. All you had to do was take one or two the day before, so you had it in your system and you're good to go. Sell the rest. You know, that, like, what I, I like what um, he was saying over here about, hey, you know, distributing maybe, you know, f you know five to seven day prescriptions, making them come back. This way they can't sell it and get all of them, you know, prescriptions on the street at one time. Now you can regulate it a little more and have it a little more, you know, structured. So that's that's my output. Brittany? That? Okay, you also have a lot of doctors that shouldn't be prescribing any type of medicine, let alone narcotics. 
So it's not really putting a number on it or this or that. It should be, they have busted quite a few doctors so far, Suboxone and narcotic and whatnot, but it's, it's gonna take time. I mean, it, it does take time, and it's <coughs> doctors that shouldn't be prescribing, let alone doing any medical work with anybody. It's just. It's happened at my, it's happened in my home. Ashley's saying it's happened in her home. Ashley talked about the community looking after the community, looking after ourselves. And with that, I think we're going to end our open conversation tonight. And thank you for coming out to help support your community, whether you're a family member, you just live here, you go to this school, you were curious about what opioid addiction is. I hope you've learned something tonight. Uh, I wanna thank all our organizers for helping put things together tonight. We're gonna do the raffle in a second. <laughs> I understand there's a big raffle. I, I wanna thank first off uh, our panelists here. Thank you very much for coming out, our six members that came out to speak. I wanna thank our storytellers very much for sharing from, from both sides. It hasn't been easy for them to tell their stories, is what I can tell you. And you're, very, you're all very brave for doing that, so thank you. Uh, I wanna thank WBEN for helping to broadcast the, the talk tonight, WBEN News Radio 930. Uh, the people that helped put this thing together, I do wanna thank uh, Kristen Jopp and Brian Jopp for helping to organize. The City of Tonawanda School District, that's Dr. Tim Oldenburg, Amy Edgerton, City of Tonawanda Mayor's Office, Rick Davis and Chuck Gilbert, our Erie County Legislator, Kevin Hardwick, and the City of Tonawanda Judge, Mark Saltarelli, and also Dean Lilac. Thank you very much for helping with tonight. Again, thank you to our storytellers helping to get the word out on this opioid conversation. I'm Nicholas Pickles from KISS 98.5 with that. We say good night, and I do believe out in the hallway, and if you want to talk to any of our experts here tonight. And that will do it here live uh, from the city of Tonawanda High School as we wrap up our uh, entire day-long broadcast, which began at 6 o'clock this morning with the 12 Voices in 12 Hours broadcast that uh, ended at 6 o'clock tonight. And, of course, when we switched here live to the city of Tonawanda High School Auditorium for this live conversation on uh, the opioid epidemic and really some powerful, powerful uh, addresses tonight and in, in, in speakers, uh, family members who have lost loved ones, uh, daughters and sons, sisters and brothers, um, addicts who are recovering, um, uh, parents, um, and, and then people in our community who can make a difference from legislative, from the medical side of things, and Dr. Josh Lynch, who was kind enough to be in our studios at 6 o'clock this morning and now here uh, at this later hour uh, in Tonawanda. Uh, Judge Mark Saltarelli here from the town of Tonawanda. I can't name them all, but, uh, you know, everybody here and then and certainly a very engaged audience. So thank you so much for joining us. An important day of broadcasting on the opioid epidemic, uh, a conversation, if you will, in our 12 Voices and 12 Hours uh, series will continue here on WBEN. For now, live, uh, this is Tim Wenger at the city of Tonawanda High School. Thanks to our technical producer this evening, uh, Phil Kennedy, and the entire crew back at the radio station. And our regular programming will resume next here on News Radio 930 WBEN.
baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 